Tom Bennett here with the Media Law Podcast. This time we're thinking about social media. We talk about children's understanding of the law relating to social media, and we discuss the Digital, Culture, Media and Sport Committee's report into disinformation and fake news. Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. In this episode, we are going to be talking about social media and its relationship with the law. Later on, Paul and I will be talking to Professor Dahi McShihi of Queen's University Belfast about the recent report into disinformation and fake news by Parliament's Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee. But first, I'm joined by Dr. Holly Powell-Jones of City University to talk about her research into children's attitudes to and understanding of the law relating to social media usage and what the future holds for young people's understanding of the law's relationship with new technology. Hi, Holly. Hello. Perhaps I could start by asking you to outline the research that you've been doing. Yes, of course. So I'm based in the sociology department and I'm looking at young people's perceptions of and understandings of uh, the risks of social media misuse. Something that's been in the news quite a lot. Lots of people concerned about it, talking about it. And uh, one of the voices that I thought was perhaps missing uh, from the debate was young people themselves. So uh, the research aims to investigate how when young people are given in focus groups different examples of online content, how they assess how risky they think it is for uh, an imagined sender to post that kind of thing online. So how do you go about conducting this research? So um, I actually used a model that was from my professional life beforehand. So I had lots of experience um, as part of a police funded project going into schools and educating young people about social media law. And I always thought it was interesting to run that as a workshop where I give out different examples of content and ask young people uh, for their perspectives first before telling them about the law. So uh, for this research, I had 12 different examples of kind of online posts that have been mocked up to represent kind of different areas of risk. And then I asked them to think about four different traffic light categories. So if they thought it was a criminal risk, to put it in red, if they thought there was a risk of being sued, to put it in orange, if they thought it was just a social risk, something that could get them in trouble with school or their parents or their peers, to put it in yellow, Um, and then if they thought there was no risk, to put it in green. And I made a note of uh, how many times each category was mentioned in response to the different stimuli examples by each group. And I also took verbatim quotes um, uh, from within the sessions of what they were saying about why they'd put it in those categories. So what sort of content were these mocked up posts replicating? So we had um, kind of quite uh, quite serious matters, such as um, there was one that was mocked up to suggest a kind of sexual or intimate video of a girl being distributed. Um, there was some um, uh, kind of some offensive homophobic and racist material. Um, and there was also kind of an allegation of a teacher-student relationship as well. So kind of quite serious stuff. Um, but then we also had uh, kind of uh, issues that might have related to privacy or defamation and copyright in there as well, as well as stuff that was just perhaps mildly rude or offensive as well to kind of have a spectrum of different material. Having got the children to flag up the different possible risks, 
um, with the traffic light system. Um, what what findings did you did you get out of this? Well, I think um, my biggest finding actually was that there was absolutely no consensus on risk uh, amongst young people, or not or very little consensus. So. The one example that I thought would be uh, would have the most consensus was the example of distributing an indecent image potentially of a child because we'd had the new uh, kind of uh, revenge porn laws coming in, quite a lot of publicity around that. And children in schools have really had a lot of education around sexting and indecent images of under 18s. It's almost been done to death. So I assume that that example at least would have quite a lot of criminal consensus. But actually, that was the most debated example in terms of risk. It was the one that had the most different mentions across all of the categories, which was very surprising to me. Um, and what sort of age range are we talking about in terms of the participants here? So I worked with 184 uh, young people aged between 11 and 18, so kind of secondary school and sixth form age. And did you notice any patterns in the levels of risk that were identified that, were, that went along with the, the different ages? Yes, as a matter of fact, um, the younger students tended to uh, use the higher risk categories a lot more, a lot more reds, a lot more oranges. Um, whereas the sixth form students, the eldest ones, were much more likely to use the lower risk categories and rate things as only a social risk or even green for no risk. So that was quite interesting because a lot of the sort of um, assumptions are that we become more risk averse as we get older and we're, we're, you know, kind of less aware of risks as we're younger. But actually, to me, I sort of theorised that actually as teenagers age, they learn more and more uh, justifications for certain behaviour online, or perhaps they even see a lot of it online and see it being tolerated and not removed. And perhaps then that feeds into this perspective that, well, actually, it's not very risky to do and say this kind of thing. So that was strange. Hmm. Um, so are there any broad lessons that we can learn from this about children's current attitude to using social media um, and perhaps for the way in which we educate children about uh, using social media? Well, I definitely think so. I mean, for starters, I think this really emphasises this research, the need for better public legal awareness and perhaps better legal education in schools and education about what is and isn't a crime when it comes to posting material online and how serious it is, not just in order to prevent, hopefully prevent and reduce young people from committing these acts online, but also to help empower any victims as well to know the difference between something that is just somebody being mean and something that is a, a criminal matter that they, they can and should report to an adult. So I think we need to do a lot more work around online safety that is focused not just on the morality and the ethics of it all, but actually very clear about legally what the risks are. I'm struck by the point that you make there about um, victims and the, the need to empower victims, which obviously in this social media dominated world there are going to be, I suspect, in tragically increasing numbers of. I was struck when I looked at some of your um, work on this at the level of 
victim blaming that appeared in the discussions that the children are having around some of the examples. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, that was um, quite uh, shocking, actually, the extent to which, um, whether it was indecent images or whether it was um, even things like racism and homophobia and misogyny online, the extent to which um, being harmed, offended or hurt by online behaviours was very much seen as a victim choice for some people. It was framed as... Um, you know, well, if somebody chooses to be offended by that, you know, that's kind of their problem a lot of the time. Um, there's a lot of downplaying of, of certain behaviour online as well, even things like threats. It was very much like, well, some of the responses kind of said, well, it's just words, you know, it's just saying something, it's not doing anything. Um, so it's kind of a combination of downplaying of speech as being an act in itself Um and not understanding that by publishing something or saying something, one is doing something. And equally, um, quite a lot of, um, well, she shouldn't have done this or maybe they did something to deserve it, um, which I didn't really expect. Um, but there was quite a lot of that victim blaming culture still present in the responses. I'm wondering whether there might also be uh, a lack of appreciation for the permanence of transactions that take place on social media? That's a really good point, actually. I think the way that the internet and social media communications is conceptualised by a younger generation is possibly very different to how quite a lot of, um, you know, those of us who didn't grow up with it might view it. I think older generations very much see this as publishing, as distributing material in a public permanent format. Um, whereas I wonder if, and there's some other literature around this, but I wonder if younger generations do see it all very much more like conversation, more transient, more ephemeral, uh, and something that will be forgotten about in time. And of course, we know from various scandals in the media that actually what you do and say on Twitter uh, can be dredged up mm. and put all over the, the press, for example, especially if you become someone of interest to the mm. public. I, I'm reminded, just as you say that, of the uh, uh, the girl who was uh, appointed as the Youth Crime Commissioner in... Paris uh, Brown, yeah. Yes. 2013, um, Kent, yeah. In Kent, because she, she, for listeners who may not remember this, uh, was appointed briefly to a, a sort of youth liaison role with the local police force. That's Kent. right. Um, uh, but it turned out fairly quickly that some social media posts from her past mm-hmm. would come back to haunt her. Um, and she had said some objectionable things. I'm struggling to remember exactly what so it was. So she'd, she'd made some uh, some racist comments, some homophobic comments. She'd mentioned drinking, sex, taking drugs, etc. And... Um, in a quite a bold move, Anne Barnes, who was the police and crime commissioner at the time, uh, said, look, I'm going to stick by her. She's very sorry for what she said. And they did a lot of press and media appearances. Um, and it seemed very distressing for Paris, kind of on all these panels, you know, crying on live television and apologising for it. But actually, in the end, um, she did step down. Uh, and I I actually felt very sorry for her at the time. And... Um, I kind of felt the reason why I designed this training in the first place was because I felt like there are certain things 
that we're expecting young people to do without the education uh, about why they need to do it. So I think um, we have got quite a judgmental press and media, I think, in the UK. And whether it's a case of preparing young people to be cautious of that or perhaps whether it's trying to educate people about the reality of teenage years and how we do all make mistakes and we do all say and do stupid things so perhaps we need to be a bit more forgiving you know I think that's still an ongoing conversation that we're having actually. I guess for those of us that that, that did not grow up with social media in this way there was no there was no great chance of uh, daft things from our early teens coming back to haunt us in the same way. Whereas in the, the Paris Brown case, we're talking about a girl who was posting this stuff on social media, objectionable as it was, at really a very early age. Um, we're not talking about somebody you know, posting stuff after several years of being a teenager with a considered rounded worldview. We're talking about a person who may well simply have been parroting whatever's been heard in the playground, which is itself parroting whatever was heard on television last night or whatever was said at home, um, possibly by other people. Um, so th- we've got a situation where children are using technology at a point in their lives where it's difficult to foresee um, what the possible outcomes of it might be in a few years if you do end up going on I mean, it may, may well be that she never thought in a million years that she'd be appointed a police and crime com- youth com- commissioner absolutely and Anne Barnes was very clear she wanted a normal teenager she you know she said that and uh, I think we need to have a conversation about what that is and what that means I'm a sociologist I'm interested in culture and cultural norms and a lot of the things that young people are criticized for saying and doing online is actually a reflection of our failings I think more broadly as a society and a culture um, to address some of these um, kind of lingering attitudes that you know are changing over time Um, And I also think that things like GDPR, for example, are starting a more public conversation about children's digital rights and at what age we think young people should or should not be responsible for their, you know, content online and uh, all that kind of thing. You know, questions about the right to erasure of social media content are still happening. Um, And I think all that stuff is really, really important. Even as adults, you know, sometimes there's things that you said last week that you might not want to be up online anymore. Um, So there's still a conversation to be had about education, I think, even for adults. The, The conclusion of my thesis was very much... Please don't judge young people too harshly on the findings of this study, because I'm not sure if I did this exact same piece of research with a random selection of 184 adults that I wouldn't get exactly the same results. That would be an interesting comparative piece of research. (laughs) Yes, potential postdoc. Who knows? Indeed. Now, one thing I, I, I do want to ask you is how did you come to this interest in law and media law specifically from a background in sociology? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I should say as a disclaimer that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not from a law background and I wouldn't even uh, dare to call myself a legal scholar, to be honest. Um, And I'm actually not a sociologist either. Um, I've never done social sciences before uh, my PhD. 
Um, my background is very much in the media. So I worked as a journalist. Um, I got a Broadcast Journalism Training Council accredited qualification, which meant I had to study and pass exams in media law. And that's really what sparked my interest in it. Um, and very much ethics as well as law and regulation and all these issues. And I was working as a journalist for Eagle Radio, local radio station in Surrey, that also had an education department. So I started doing workshops on news presenting and journalism uh, in schools alongside uh, reading the news. Uh, and it was through that and actually the Paris Brown incident uh, that kick-started this idea that maybe young people would benefit from learning about media law and ethics as well, seeing as we're all publishing and broadcasting and distributing now online. Um, so I designed some training and we were very, very fortunate that our newly elected police and crime commissioner at the time uh, gave us some grant funding to roll that out across lots of schools. In the first year, I basically had to stop doing journalism because we had 45 schools to go and get round pretty much single-handedly. Um, and then that was recommissioned for a further three years, after which I'd started the PhD research and um, sort of ended up with a, a training the trainers and updating the materials so that Eagle Radio could continue to deliver that in schools. Um, while I started to learn how to do academic research, basically. Having gone through the process of designing training for children on this, and then having come to the, conduct the research that you have, um, what do you think needs to change about the way in which children are educated? Uh, is this something that it should be incumbent upon schools to teach? Is it something that the social media platforms themselves should have some responsibility to provide, I don't know, some sort of online training for when one signs up for an account? I don't know. But um, what's your view on that? I think that's a really good question. And actually, at the beginning of my PhD, I sort of say part of the problem with taking responsibility for educating young people on online safety is that there's so many actors involved. There's, there's schools, there's parents and the family, there's government, there's social media companies, there's the police, um, there's mm -hmm. legal professionals, there's all sorts of people who arguably could and should play a role in taking responsibility for that. Um, and that does make it very complicated. Um, I think we need to have some joined up thinking here. I think if we've got some training that is informed by lots of different actors, um, that's really, really good. But my main point is just to emphasise again, not to overlook the main stakeholders in this, which is young people themselves. And I think if we can have a form of education that is perhaps a bit more of a dialogue and a two-way street where us adults and police and parents and teachers and researchers and politicians are learning from young people about their changing norms and their changing experiences at the same time that we are educating them, then that's going to be the best possible solution, I think. Let me turn to a completely different matter, but that draws on your background as a journalist, because it's it's relevant to some recent legal developments, and that is the issue of citizen journalism. Um, once upon a time, to be a journalist, you really needed to go and train as a journalist, get some accreditation, and get a job at some sort of news outlet. Uh, and maybe you could do it at student level, but there was a degree of professionalism involved. These days, 
anyone with a smartphone can proclaim themselves, it seems, to be a journalist. So... Including what? some including some controversial figures who yes, <laughs> are in the news quite a lot at the moment. Um, yes. But I, I wonder, when it comes to the way that the law applies, take the law on defamation, for example, which once upon a time, in order for a public interest defence to run uh, to a defamation claim, the journalist involved would have to prove, would have to show that they had been a responsible journalist. Um in conducting uh, their investigations. Now, since the Defamation Act of 2013, very recently we've had a case on this and the Court of Appeal, the Economo case, has said that uh, with the new public interest defence under Section 4, um, the courts will take into account the lack of training, the lack of resources that a lay person, a lay journalist may have or a lay person who makes a defamatory statement may have when assessing uh, uh, whether they've acted uh, with reasonable belief that publishing the statement that they've made is in the public interest. In essence, this means that there is a lesser standard um, being applied than was once the case, which is good news for citizen journalists, especially those who uh, like to defame people. Um, but is this a, a positive dev development, do you think? I think it's, I don't know whether it's positive or negative. I think it's a common sense development, perhaps. Um, and that's that's that, really. I, I think this is such a thorny issue at the moment, and I'm still lecturing on media law and ethics. And increasingly, my clients are people on PR or marketing courses as well, or people who want to be bloggers, etc. But um, this is such a thorny issue. Um, I've just been taking a module on social media and journalism at UAL for the journalism students and we've talked about this converging and merging of what you might call you know the public and journalists in terms of the online space and material and we've seen also scandals about um, you know celebrities and high profile influencers not correctly identifying paid for content with the hashtag ad various issues like that um, and I, I think we are perhaps losing the ability to clearly distinguish a journalist from someone who is not a journalist. So I think it's more helpful to ask the question, is what you are doing journalism? And I think you can be a member of the public or you can be a trained journalist and be doing journalism. And that is probably a more helpful question to ask. And, you know, I don't want to make generalisations. You know, there's lots of people out there who think you're a journalist or you're a blogger and the journalists know about the law and they're ethical and the bloggers don't. That's too much of a generalisation for my liking. There's some great bloggers out there who are doing well-researched, public interest content. They're speaking up for communities that have been ignored by the mainstream media and they're doing some really great work and it should be valued. And I equally think there's some journalists out there who are very badly behaved and, you know, uh, throwing shade on the rest of the profession who take it seriously. So it's not as simple as that anymore. I think really the question is also about funding and training as well, because while we've got lots and lots of influencers and bloggers very quickly and easily being able to make a lot of money, we're also simultaneously having a bit of a crisis with journalism in terms of how we're going to fund that. And um, so, yeah, but I think there's been a swing back from the popularity of citizen journalism. You know, we've seen 
Huffington Post and Vice and BuzzFeed and various other models perhaps struggling a bit now. Whereas, you know, you've got the Times and Sunday Times and the New York Times and the Guardian with their sort of paid for subscribers model actually reporting really, really good levels of engagement with the public and profits and all this kind of thing. So I think there'll always be a place for good public interest journalism. And for me, if every citizen's going to be a reporter, let's make sure they've got at least basic training. And that's why I want it in schools. Well, this has been fascinating. Holly Powell-Jones, thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. We'll be back after this. I'm joined now by uh, Paul Rag once again. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. And also by Professor Dahi Makshihi of Queen's University, Belfast. Hi, Dahi. Hello, Tom. Um, we're going to be talking in this section about the recent report of Parliament's Digital Culture Media uh, Select Committee on fake news and disinformation. So... Without further ado, uh, Dahi, you really are the expert in this field. Um, could you tell us a bit about the background to this report? Well, there's an awful lot that's covered in this report. At one level, it's an investigation into some very specific issues surrounding, for instance, uh, advertising on social media in and around the Brexit referendum, um, the question of foreign interference in election campaigns in the UK, in the US and elsewhere, and some of the very specific privacy and data handling practices that are in place um, in, in relation to Facebook. But then there's a, a broader story going on, which is really about the regulation of social media companies and of large internet-related companies in general. It became a very controversial um, set of hearings. There was a lot of back and forth around who would or wouldn't appear. The committee joined up with a number of other similar parliamentary committees investigating these issues and held what it called an international grand committee um, made up of members of the eight parliaments in question, firing questions at staff from Facebook and various others. So it turns out to be a report that's asking quite a lot of questions around the overall approach to the regulation of companies such as Facebook. I recall there being some hoo-ha when various high-ranking figures in Facebook, it was Facebook, wasn't it, refused to appear, wasn't it? Mark Zuckerberg refused to appear before the committee. That's right. Zuckerberg himself did not appear before the committee, although um, various members of Facebook staff did. Probably the one who's best known is Richard Allen, who is a, a former politician in the United Kingdom, but now speaks for Facebook on various policy and privacy uh, issues. And the committee also heard evidence from whistleblowers and, uh, and others who'd been involved. The story around Cambridge Analytica uh, was part of this committee's investigations. And it gained access to material that was being considered in separate um, legal proceedings in the United States by a company called 643, which disclosed some of the internal emails that had been going on in Facebook around, for instance, 
how to deal with particular uses of data. So the report tries to piece together some of the story of how Facebook has been acting and also how it deals with other parties. But yes, Zuckerberg himself uh, did not take up the committee's invitation. Neither did Dominic Cummings, who's a high-profile figure in the Vote Leave campaign surrounding the 2016 referendum. Uh, and the committee expressed its displeasure regarding both individuals. So what are the headline findings in the report? The big story is a, a set of principles, uh, and these indeed reflect the committee's engagement with other parliamentary committees, where they argue for technology firms recognizing, and they literally say, their great power and their great responsibility, um, a phrase that some may have heard before in popular culture, and talk about how social media companies should be held to be liable. They don't comply with judicial, statutory, or regulatory orders to remove, uh, to remove content. Specifically, the committee's report talks about there needing to be a code of ethics, drawing upon the background of something like the broadcasting code that's drawn up by the regulator Ofcom in the United Kingdom. That code relates to radio and television services in the most part. Uh, the committee is suggesting not the same code, but something similar in terms of setting out the, uh, the expectations upon what it calls a new category of companies uh, that are neither the, um, the conventional publisher, but also not a, an internet intermediary, which has very few legal responsibilities. The committee is arguing for, for something in between that would be governed, as it says, by uh, a code of ethics. There are various other recommendations. Uh, one, to use a levy along the lines of the Financial Conduct Authority's charges on um, on, the, on, on the financial industry to think of something similar that would pay for the cost of regulation, as well as various more targeted suggestions around reforming electoral law. Electoral law is considered to be fairly old-fashioned when it comes to the control of advertising. And so the committee is suggesting that various types of online advertising and uh, uh, dissemination of information be caught within the statutory control of elections in the UK. So, Paul, how would you feel about a, an Ofcom-style ethics code for the tech companies? Yeah, I think I think I would struggle with it. Um, I'll tell you what I'll struggle. I, I struggle with a, a little bit. Um, the sort of the paternalism, the paternalism that sort of runs through at least a popular debate on fake news and uh, what to do with it. And um, not that I think this is necessarily where we inevitably end up, but my concern is that, uh, in effect, we're trying to protect people um, from themselves and that we're trying to create a system that uh, sort of protects people from making the wrong decisions um, not only in terms of their uh, personal lives, but also in terms of their um, public lives, in other words, their contribution to democratic participation. And I'm just very uncomfortable at that sort of idea as a solution to the inverted commas problem, because it strikes me that if the problem is people believe information they receive through social media or any other 
uh, format, uh, then really the solution to that is to tackle why people believe that kind of information and educate them um, rather than to try and keep stopping uh, people from trying to con them. It's quite interesting how in this report, there's an elegant backing away from the very term fake news. There seems to be a recognition that as a phrase, it seems to carry no useful meaning in terms of a legal debate any longer. Even in the title of the final report, fake news is placed in inverted commas, with the emphasis being placed a little more on this information. Um, but even at that, the, that very point that Paul makes, um, which is reflected in the report, I suppose, in its very final section on digital literacy, is a very small part of the overall report. And it's not an area that is emphasized in, in, in any way. It's clearly, it's one of these areas where we see a call for greater literacy and, and education around information mm. sources and so on. Um, but it's not something the committee is really prioritizing. And indeed, its, it's regulatory arguments are, have been given much more emphasis and its, its attention to what Leave.eu did, what Aaron Banks did and so on, certainly occupied much more time in its hearings than perhaps this more advanced discussion that ought to take place um, regarding the role of education um, rather than the role of regulators. I suppose one of the things I'm interested in, and, and this this does sort of apply to um, uh, vote leave and, and also to the, the Trump-Clinton um, presidential election, is the idea that somehow uh, an organization like Facebook unwittingly um, helped others, whoever they may have been, um, to uh, distort or otherwise corrupt the democratic participation process. And although we might drift off here, I think, from, from legal issues, I'm really interested in this idea of what we mean by that. How can the dissemination of fake information corrupt uh, the political uh, process? Um, and I think the, the way that we understand that, the way that we investigate that idea um, is telling. And the, the report does, and the committee proceedings don't necessarily get us any closer to an answer to that question. I mean, if we think back to the long-standing argument in UK law regarding political advertising on television, uh, and we've seen this in, if we, even when this has been tested in the UK courts and in the European Court of Human Rights, on one hand, we have the proposition that television is very powerful. And so allowing those with the deepest pockets to buy up all the good advertising sl spots on television would mm. affect the, 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 the good progress of an election. And on the other hand, we have the argument that well, it's okay to restrict advertising on television because you can still get your message out by other ways. Um, whether those other ways are more powerful or less powerful is a question that's never been satisfactorily answered yeah. by the courts that have found themselves charged with this question. And therefore, on top of, of all that, we get this quite sketchy evidence base around number, you know, lots of people have been reached by 
uh, quite targeted campaigns, for instance, in and around a referendum. And that targeting has been done on the basis of a certain degree of profiling, uh, trying to work out, trying to estimate someone's political views based on the other things they're interested in. And the science of that is still at a relatively early stage in some regards, as we all know, any time we get an, a recommendation for an Amazon book, that there's no resemblance to what we'd actually like to buy, <laughs> but it's taking a misleading signal from a book that we bought as a gift or or something else. Um, you know, the technology is clearly moving on, and there's some discussion in the report uh, around that. But that tells us what's happening. It doesn't necessarily tell us what difference it's making. And that mm. crucial distinction is surely going to be fundamental if, for instance, there were to be a regulatory change and that change were itself subject to scrutiny under human rights law, the way that we've already done for something like the ban on political advertising on television. I guess that's partly a problem with working out what is influencing political campaigning generally. And I recall in the 2017 elections aftermath, there was a lot of talk of uh, this youth quake, the young people who turned out to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, and that explained why he'd come from so far behind in the polls with the Labour Party to uh, just about level pegging with the Conservative Party by the time of the election. And I, that, it seemed to me, was based in no small part upon the amount of uh, work that was being done by young people on social media to promote uh, the Corbyn agenda and um, the number of posts that were going viral and so on and so forth. It seemed very much like a young person's campaign. But in the statistics that came out afterwards, it didn't actually show a, a, a significant increase in youth turnout at the ballot box. Um, so I wonder if it's the same kind of symptom here where it's very difficult it's easy to track what's happening online but difficult to track its impact we have that famous argument in advertising that half of the advertising works and the other half doesn't the problem is we don't know which half is which and maybe the temptation of newer forms of political advertising is that you get a good deal more data on it you can track the number of clicks you can use what the designers called A-B testing, where you have very small variations and try and see what drives engagement. And doing that on a regular, pretty continuous basis, you start to build up advertisements that at least appear to be more effective in terms of getting people to read them. Now, translating that into voting practice is uh, is a good deal harder. There is also, of course, going to be that echo chamber effect where all you might be reaching is people who've already made up their mind based on other information. Um, and so, you know, returning to the, the legal side of it, we do already, at least in the UK system, try to manage that process, at least in part. But we, we manage it through proxies. We control things like spending. We allocate party political broadcasts. We have time periods where... Um, official campaigns take place and we rely upon the the electoral commission at least in part now one of the interesting things about the electoral commission is you know it is not 
institutionally set up to be the regulator of choice for social media, let alone transnational social media sites, let alone transnational social media sites that are allegedly the, 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 atta- the target of a coordinated Russian disinformation campaign. Um, and so bits of this will fall into the remit of the Ad Standards Authority, potentially bits of it will fall into the Information Commissioner's Office, uh, who've been quite active and indeed gave evidence to this particular inquiry on a number of occasions. Uh, bits of it won't really fall into anyone's remit. And on one hand, that might be an opportunity for a great deal of political freedom, uh, an opportunity to innovate, to speak, to put out challenging ideas. But it certainly seems to worry politicians um, and the political establishment that aspects of the um, the media game seem to be rather different than they might have been 10, 15, 20 years ago. But the, the other thing that I think is interesting here is that there, there's there's always a danger that we um, we confuse two different narratives. I mean, there's one narrative that we've talked about, which is impact. And then there's the other narrative, which is about this sort of unlawful impact, this unlawful impact of somehow interfering with the with the democratic process. And, and that's the part that I think even in um, even in decisions, even in um case law we see um a hole i think in uh, legal reasoning and we see um a failure to really uphold the anti-paternalism principle which runs through our sort of liberal history and um, because even in a case like animal defenders international for example we see the uk court being swayed by this idea that um, televisions are somehow in, uh, bad and uh, insidious and will somehow corrupt us through those flashing images uh, and that there is this sort of brainwave uh, brainwashing uh, going on uh, without us necessarily realizing that we've been um, corrupted in this way and what I really struggle with is uh, I'm not really looking for sort of scientific evidence that might back that up or not. I'm really thinking about how this fits with that, this idea of the autonomous being that we're all meant to be, who is free to decide. If I choose to be brainwashed, if I choose to just go along with what my neighbour thinks uh, is the right outcome in a in a popular debate or, or a popular vote, then that's for me. To decide, and this is something that I've struggled with in the debate. That I don't think that sort of almost that forsaking of uh, responsibility in the voter gets enough recognition. Do people really choose to be brainwashed? I mean, isn't the this, the great skill of the manipulator lies in being able to do it without being detected? So it's perfectly possible to encounter material that looks entirely genuine and be taken in by it. I've seen stuff from fake news sites that's obviously fake, but I've also seen stuff from fake news sites that seemed entirely plausible to me. Um, and it's if it can fool, uh, if it can fool one of us, I suspect it can fool a lot of people. Although there's a quite a, there's a good question there as to. At the extent to which something like that is genuinely unlawful um, rather than unwise or indeed unhelpful, we, mm. we see this tension. I mean, if we think about the way that many 
legal systems, including in the UK, regulate radio and television. We focus upon accuracy, but we also focus upon due impartiality. Um, now, again, the, the social science evidence is mixed as to how successful that is, or indeed the extent to which audiences even appreciate that and can recognize that the standards are different, for instance, on Sky News as opposed to, to the Sun. They're working in very different legal uh, and indeed political context, but whether that actually makes a difference, um, we can't we can't entirely be sure. Moreover, if we um, if we think of very specific legal issues, you know, a, a misleading advertisement that tries to sell you something, uh, or for instance, conceals material information regarding a purchase that you're about to make, we have quite a number of well-worked-out legal remedies for that. And they're primarily justified on the basis of the harm, sometimes economic harm, sometimes the... Uh, the, the dangerousness of a product or whatever the, the case may be. Using that reasoning in a pure political context has always been very difficult. It's why advertising bodies tend not to deal very much with political uh, or cause-related advertising because they find themselves asked to play referee. And when something is obviously false, well, that's interesting. In other cases, um, political opponents will be very quick to cry that something is fake news or is misleading, whereas actually it's uh, maybe a fairly tendentious application of a set of statistics. But that might be different to something that's genuinely um, inaccurate. And then there's a question as to whether it being inaccurate is a result of sloppy journalism or an intent to mislead. And those kind of intention questions matter a lot in consumer law. Whether they should matter in the democratic discursive process is not something on which there's political agreement for the, the very reasons that both of you have pointed out. Yeah, and, and one, of, one of the things I really struggle with is, is the idea that actually we might hold uh, journalists, including sisters and journalists uh, through the internet, uh, to a higher standard of honesty uh, and accountability than we actually have for our politicians. So, you know, we, we talk about, uh, for example, we could talk about Brexit and the day after the Brexit vote, Nigel Farage saying on um, ITV that actually when that campaign said they were going to send that money to the NHS instead of to Europe, he didn't actually mean it. It wasn't actually something that was going to happen. Um, but also going further back, Nick Clegg promising that if his party got into power, they wouldn't raise tuition fees. And then that being the first thing that he did. Well, some would say that. We have held those politicians to account, at least in Nick Clegg's case. He's been first; his party was routed in an election, and then he lost his own seat. <laughs> but we didn't, um, we didn't hold him to so, account in a meaningful sense because tuition fees were raised, and Brexit is going to happen, and that money to the NHS. Well, we've not held not been them to their promises. We've perhaps held them uh, in Farage's case. No, we've held some politicians to account for having broken their promise in the sense that they have received a sanction, viz they've been unelected by the electorate. Um, but I, I, I take your point. Your accountability point there makes a, makes an awful lot of, uh, of sense and it explains why this committee is struggling 
with its uh, with its work. I've spoken elsewhere about the the current mood of a tech clash, where we see an attempt by the political process, in particular, to hold companies like Facebook to account. It's not necessarily clear what we mean by that, um, whether it's about specific legal doctrines such as liability, uh, whether it's about things like which, in which jurisdiction you pay your taxes, um, whether it's about using something more akin to broadcasting regulation, or whether it's just uh, a general dissatisfaction with particular content on social media. It might be disinformation today. It may be distressing and upsetting images tomorrow. It may be intellectual property the day after that. Uh, And so this debate about accountability into which this committee's work fits is something where there's a general sense that something ought to be done, but not yet an agreement on what that something is or what it might actually mean in more precise legal terms. And what else is happening in this kind of bigger picture look at things? I mean, it's not just the DCMS committee's report that's grappling with these issues, is it? No, and indeed, uh, not long after the Digital Culture Uh, Media and Sports Committee published its report. The Communications Committee in the House of Lords published its report on what started as an inquiry on the internet to regulate or not to regulate, uh, where it makes not dissimilar recommendations regarding the type of liability that um, companies in this position should be exposed to. They called, the House of Lords Committee called for a set of general principles for tech companies, which would um, in time be the subject of maybe a new regulatory body. They talked about an overall, what are called a digital authority, which would coordinate the work of all the existing regulators. We saw similar arguments in reports from think tanks. One uh, called Dot Everyone published a report before in Christmas, before Christmas 2018. The Carnegie Trust commissioned some research on it, talking about a duty of care for social media companies. We've seen new legislation in Germany. There's proposed legislation in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, There's already been work in New Zealand and Australia. And the European Commission is interested in uh, in these wider issues as well. We'd be expecting a white paper from the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport in the near future. And it's widely expected that that report would recommend something akin to a duty of care, potentially for content that would that is legal but harmful which is a category that seems to be emerging from the DCMS committee report, the House of Lords Communications committee report, and others. What sort of material does it have in mind, do you think? Um, again, it's never entirely clear, but we're, we're talking about, um, for instance, recent controversies on material on social media that would appear to normalize or glorify self-harm. We're talking about some of the material maybe that falls outside the amended terrorism legislation, but causes concern in terms of um, of uh, radicalization. Um, we're talking about the 
general type of online abuse that may not constitute a specific criminal offence under, say, the Communications Act, but is seen as trolling, abusive, crowding out other voices uh, and so on. There's quite a lot happening in this area at the moment and there's been a number of promises from the responsible ministers that this is something that will be looked at, potentially taking advantage of flexibilities post-Brexit because the approach to liability at the moment owes its... uh, its main points to a directive on electronic commerce, which was adopted in 2000. And if the United Kingdom is no longer following those standards, then there may be opportunities to reset the balance when it comes to uh, what tech companies are required to do. And Paul, I suspect that the idea of a, a category of content that is l- legal but harmful and potentially attracting uh, regulation would trouble you. Am I right? Yeah, I I, I wanted to say Dahi back to um, an earlier quote that uh, that he came uh, out with. Um, great power comes great responsibility, and um, it, it, the, the, one of the difficulties I have with that sort of um, phrase is that when we say the word responsibility, we're actually referring to two types of responsibility. We sort of mean responsibility in a, a liability sense as uh, something legal, uh, being responsible for the uh, legal consequences of an action. But we also mean it in a sort of ethical sense um, or a non-legal sense um, as being a sort of cause um, for something or not acting with sufficient propriety. Um, and it, it, it strikes me that in the debate that we're having here, I think part of the reason why at least some of these recommendations uh, and some of the discussions are so unsatisfactory is that actually we're talking about three sort of separate phenomena. We have phenomena which causes um, harm in a sufficiently serious way that we would want something to be done about it. We would want some sort of coercive uh, conclusion to it, such as terrorism, for example, through through the internet. Um, but also, we bring within this um, offence things which aren't objectively harmful to us, but nevertheless offend us in a way that we think it shouldn't take place um, on the internet. And then that third thing is ethical questions. This idea that Facebook is doing something or not doing something, or in fact, any social media company is doing something or not doing something, uh, which upsets us and we think is not appropriate for an organization of that size, uh, both in terms of its reach and in terms of its finances. And we see that horrible phrase, corporate social responsibility, Uh, come in far too easily uh, to try and capture some of these ethical issues and try and turn them somehow through some alchemic process into a legal or would-be legal standard. 
We're seeing an awful lot of that type of the only way is ethics thinking going on <laughs> at the moment. Um, the House of Lords committee had a distinction between illegal content, harmful content and antisocial content, which frankly would occupy the three of us for a whole series of podcasts just to unpack. But it's, it's simply the latest step. The European Commission um, made a recommendation a few months ago, which called upon social media sites and others to engage in proactive obligations. So above and beyond what they're required to do when notified uh, to try and go out and use, for instance, algorithmic systems to spot um, illegal content before they were notified of its illegality and to take it down. And that was very much to be done on a non-statutory basis. When Amber Rudd was Home Secretary, she gave a speech to her party conference uh, calling upon tech companies to honour their moral obligations and act now in, res- in respect of uh, content related to terrorism. And often, of course, those calling on companies will point to the degree of technological innovation that's in place to ensure that you know, advertising revenue continues to flow or that systems function um, uh, uh, well. But alongside all of this, we have the the new uh, Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation established by the UK government. We have debates around algorithmic transparency uh, and, uh, and accountability. And so there's a wide agenda of things that are uh, either not substantively unlawful or only require action where particular conditions are satisfied, such as notice. Um, and we see them being talked about in sort of soft law sources uh, quite a lot. And therefore, committee reports like this can be read as an attempt to bring into the more formal legal environment uh, aspects that have not until now been part of the, uh, the, the, the framework for regulating companies of, these nature, of this nature. Well, I suspect this debate will rumble on and on, uh, but not here, unfortunately, because we're out of time. Um, but it's clearly uh, a, a subject that is going to occupy our thoughts for many years to come. Dahi, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. There's no news segment this time because the DCMS report was undoubtedly the biggest news in media law of the last month. So that's it for this episode, and we'll see you next time. This episode of the Media Law Podcast featured Tom Bennett, City University of London, Paul Ragg, the University of Leeds, Dahi Makshihi, Queen's University Belfast, and Holly Powell-Jones of City University of London. It was made possible by funding from City University of London and from Leeds University School of Law.